Hi, my name's Andrew Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to episode 17 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. This episode is an interview with award-winning science fiction and fantasy writer Derek Kunskin. Derek's short story, The Way of the Needle, won the Asimov Science Fiction Readers Award for its category in 2012. And you can hear that story at the science fiction podcast site Escape Pod. That's www escapepod.org and it's episode 446. Although Derek's main genre are fantasy and science fiction, we do keep the conversation as genre neutral as possible, focusing on general areas like characterization, scene setting and the challenges of being a writer. I really enjoyed the interview with Derek. I hope you find it useful. Here it is. So welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, Derek. Uh, thanks very much, Andy. Glad you could give us some time today. I want to start by just asking a little bit about how you first got into writing. Well, I think probably like a lot of people, um, it's something that I found out I wanted to do as soon as I could write yeah. in English, for example. And so I think I, I've always written just because I had to. I wrote my first book when I think I was in grade four or something and then wrote another okay. one in grade eight and then started a real adult novel when I was 15. After that, I, I knew I wanted to be a novelist. And by the time I was 31, I had written two novels. And, you know, obviously it had taken some time to get those out. And they obviously had not gone anywhere. And and I felt that my progress of learning to write was just far too slow because I had wanted to be a best-selling writer by the time I was 25, obviously. Um, you know, because like everybody. Yeah. Um, so the the thing is, though, I write in science fiction and fantasy, and there's a very healthy short fiction market in yeah. that genre. And some of the oldest advice there is around is start in short fiction, get your skills up, you know, then then the novels will come later. And I'd always just said, no, I don't want to do short fiction. But I mean, after getting to my 31st birthday and still not having a novel published, I said, well, all right, I got to switch it up. So I, I switched to short fiction. Then the thing is, I knew nothing about but short fiction. I'd never read it, didn't enjoy it. And, and so it took me a good three years of reading before I started to get a good sense of it. And I had some, some stories that were just awful um, because, you know, but I was reading Hemingway. I was reading lo uh, Nobel laureates. I was reading a lot of the SF collections, the year's yeah. best and stuff. And, yeah. and finally, three years after I put myself on this path of short fiction, I got my first couple of sales, one of which was uh, a pretty good semi-pro sale. And then, then my second one was an Asimov's. Now life is trucking along pretty good on the writing side. So you talked about maybe having a period of three years when it sounds like you're almost doing an apprenticeship in writing during that time, or certainly learning a lot. Can you? For can the you... record, the apprenticeship is not done. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. What was your question? My well, my question was going to be. I mean, I agree with you. Actually, it, it's kind of a, it, three years is nothing in writing in some ways, is it? If you think about the kind of thing that you were writing when you started doing short fiction and compare that to what you are doing, say, now, what's the main things you've learned? I think probably when I started, I was not a bad craftsman. So the thing was paragraphing, sentencing, the use of active words and stuff like that. I'd learned that relatively early, like in university. I think where I fell down for a long time was I don't think I was a natural storyteller. Some people have an instinctive sense and can tell a story that's quite gripping. Yeah. And whether or not they're any good at the craft, 
people are going to buy the work because the story is gripping. And I feel I was missing that for a long time. And I had to do a tremendous amount of analysis of short stories and studies of the plot and how did this work and before I could get the endings to work. And finally, I, I took some advice from screenwriting, which is just write the ending first and then write the ending, the climax, then go to the beginning and write the story. I think I learned a lot from screenwriting as well, because there's a guy called John Truby, who's a, a Hollywood script doctor, and he's got a bunch of courses that you can buy. I highly recommend them. He's got a real way of, of showing you what the climax has to do. And if you start from the climax and then you have to go backwards, you find out what stuff you have to subtract from your story, from your character, from everything else mm. to find your beginning. And then you go from there. And then because you've gone through the process of subtraction, you know what to add back in as the as the stuff goes on. I know you're someone who also does quite a lot of planning and outlining. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What do you do? Now, I, I don't start a story. Like, I don't write the ending for real now. What I do is I, I do it in, in outline. And, yeah, I, I prep the ending, and then I ask myself questions about the ending. Like, is the reader going to be surprised about this ending? Um, and if they're not, then I work backwards and say, well, I've got to put in misdirection here and there. Is it going to be logical? And if it's not, then I go back and, and, and make the pathway towards the ending more more logical. Is there going to be an emotional impact? I ask myself those kinds of questions at the outline stage. And if any of the answers are no, if I can't modify it to the point where I feel a sort of resounding yes, then, you know, I, I just trunk the, the outline. And I think that's really helped me out a lot. Okay. Now, I've read a little bit of your work, and particularly your story, The Way of the Needle, which is the one that really attracted me to, to the kind of thing that you do. The two things that really intrigued me and struck me from that, first of all, the world building. So can you tell me a little bit about how you went about setting up that world in that story? Well, I can be a difficult person and contrary and stuff. And so I, I had read in a book about world building by a guy called Stephen Gillette, he had he had written out like he was describing different kinds of stars you could have and one of the things he said was no life could exist on a pulsar the way you know around a pulsar where the way we know it because nothing can live off of microwaves and x-rays and i said well i'll show you and then <laughs> he had a similar sort of statement about nobody's ever done anything on a world that's in like basically that survived a collision and has only the iron core left. He, and, and he pointed out how difficult it would be to do something with that kind yeah. of world. And so yeah. I said, well, I'll show you. And he said the same thing as well with cellular life. He said, life must be cellular. And I said, well, I'm going to show him wrong. And I think somewhere else I'd seen you always need a human in science fiction or fantasy to do the translation between the strangeness of the world and the, the normality of the reader. And I said, well, that's my fourth thing. And so I just started writing a story in those terms. And I'm a sense of wonder junkie. And so yeah. I, I'm all about the sense of wonder. Like, I mean, that's I, I like having my head blown wide open by reading science books, but I also do that with science fiction. And so that's where that, that process started came from. The other thing is I'm a molecular biologist by trade. I did my bachelor and master's in molecular right. biology, and I've read Dawkins many times, and I, I know evolution pretty well and ecosystems and what what you need as your sorts of stuff to make uh, a whole world realistic in the sense that it, it has multiple life forms and stuff and some way to live. So that's a lot of fun for me. And I enjoy that part of the process a lot. And then I believe at the same time, uh, like the way of the needle is basically a little bit of a, an alien samurai story. And uh, cowboy movies are, are just very much like samurai mm. stories. And so I've been watching a lot of cowboy movies uh, in that period and thought, wouldn't it be cool if and, you know, that's that's sort of where that character arc came from. 
It's interesting because it's almost like somebody has set you a challenge, even though they didn't realise it. And you've <laughs> risen to that challenge. You've kind of, somebody said, no one's ever going to be able to write a story like this. And you've actually risen to that. But I, I just want to pick out something else that you said there that I'm quite intrigued about. And this, I think, is a cross-genre or beyond-genre point. You've, you've, you said you were a sense of wonder junkie. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do, how do we create, as writers, a sense of wonder? Or what is it that, that's going to... In, in all of literature, like in, in every genre, and yeah. including oh, well, what is it about how do you get to that the core of it would be beyond genre i i, I think it would be too but i think it, i i don't think everybody's going for sense of wonder right so mm. that's why you have some very very powerful literary novels set in the here and now that do very very well because they're just powerfully written and that people aren't necessarily going for that i i myself suffer from extreme modernity boredom i i've always <laughs> found the world of taxes and grocery shopping and everything else to be possibly the most boring thing my mind would go off on space adventures and superheroes and everything else and knights and castles and sinbad i mean just anywhere but here was basically my my thing right i have written literary work i worked for a few years with street kids in central america and south america and that world that those street kids lived in and the kind of experiences i had as as like this kind of aid worker were just so bizarre and different and alien to me that it, it almost hit me like can people actually live like this and i actually wrote one and to me there was a a sense of wonder in transporting myself to that other world, even if yeah. that other world was not nice. Yeah. And so to me, writing is the sense of wonder is about escapism, but it, I, I don't think everybody's after it. And so you can get your historical fiction. I think probably a lot of historical mysteries go that way because that is part of the sense of wonder to have yeah. this detective wandering around 18th century, whatever, you know. <laughs> It's probably a longer debate than we can have now, but I think a lot of great literature contains within it that sense of wonder, contains within it that potential for somebody to be transported into another place. It doesn't have to be a fantastical place. It doesn't necessarily have to be another time, but the reader is being taken somewhere else and and is intrigued and enthralled by the place that they've come to. Yeah. so I really enjoyed the characterization as well in that story. There's, there's a kind of samurai uh, feel underpinning and a sensibility to it. How did you go about creating those characters? It's quite a rigid structure, social structure there. Part of the story and part of the reason I made them out of needles that could be pulled in and pulled out and claws mm-hmm. that could be taken off and so on was because I had actually listened to a podcastle story where they had this guy who had to go through a shape change to go to another part of a society, and it was supposed to be a temporary thing, but he had some sort of epiphany about the other, and the other being the same as him, and and realizing that people are the same. Part of what I wanted to do with this was have have a shape change story in science fiction, and and also have that kind of... Like, I found what he was doing with fantasy was fascinating in in with its parallels with the real world Mm -hmm. where you have class where you have race where you have other things and i just thought i wanted to try something like that and Mm -hmm. so having people come from different social strata was was something that was key for me and i you know in the simpsons for example i think there's a lot of brilliance that's beyond the humor i think there's brilliance in the structure there's no joke of stupidity that you can't use on homer mr burns is the most frail person you'll ever meet and and ralph wiggum is is the the archetypal loser right the 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 kid who's just never going to be with it and as i was re-listening to the story in in anticipation of this this interview i was realizing that i had really exaggerated the sort of honor and the misunderstanding of of the other in the hero and the sort of patheticness of the friend 
when it's written, people don't see the exaggeration perhaps as much as I felt as I was yeah. writing it. It didn't strike me when I was reading it as overly exaggerated because you are dealing with a world in which there is exaggeration and where, where there is cultural misunderstanding mm -hmm. between people. And, and yet two main characters in it reach out across that gulf to each other. For me, it was the way in which you might have managed to take these two characters who normally would not engage with each other in the way that they do, and they connect, they make relationship across some divide. The hero loses the things that make him a hero and make him special, and the sort of Ralph Wiggum person is, is pulled into a heroic situation. And yes. so... In between, that's where they meet in this this area. You're right, where where people wouldn't normally interact. Yeah. For me, maybe the lesson there, or for, as writers, the lesson that we can draw from that perhaps is you might create dynamic in a story by having two characters who are very very different from each other, and yet they work their way towards each other. They perhaps take on some of the things that each takes on something that the other has, or each takes on something which would be in the world of the other, and they connect somewhere. Yeah, they teach each other. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that conflict is really important. Like, like, I mean, yes, of course, duh. But I mean, in the sense that you need to build conflict into the structure. And I still think, I, I'm sure there's plenty of great examples out there, but I, I don't know if you've seen the reimagined, uh, the, the new Battlestar Galactica where I once did an analysis of just their pilot and did a bubble chart of all of the characters. And every time I saw a conflict between two characters, I would draw a line. And what I found was that each of those bubbles had at least three lines going to three other characters. And very few of those lines were the same. And so yeah. you had just this brilliant structure for drama where these people needed to work together because they're basically on a ship. And yet they had these flaws that were sometimes part of the conflict, but these very strong moral views that were also part of the conflict mm -hmm. and ego, which was part of the conflict. And just having built the structure, I can imagine that those TV writers had a much easier time later on, but that they, they knew they had to graph this out and, and make sure mm -hmm. that the conflict was there. In a short story, you've got to be much briefer, and so you can yes, only yes. have conflict with two, but uh, I think the principle's there. So I'm interested in exploring a little bit further the creation of character. Uh, in, my, in the podcast that I've been doing recently, I've been looking at character and, and how, how to create effective and vibrant and realistic characters. You've mentioned conflict, which I think is an element which can drive characterization. Are there other elements that for you are important? I think Way of the Needle was perhaps the first story where I had uh, tried to take on board uh, the advice by Nancy Cress. And uh, Nancy okay. Cress had said at one point that her writing had not gone very far. She'd not been very successful until she realized that each one of her stories has to have two conflicts. Like there has to be an internal and an external. And the resolution of one conflict enables the resolution of the other. In Way of the Needle, there's the the internal honor versus assassination going on, and the external is the, the friendship versus social expectation. And having an inner life that mirrors, like in a symbolic and narrative way, the mm. outer conflict is very, very important. And so for me, when I'm at the outline stage... I'm usually looking for what I call mirrors. And so the thing is, if the internal conflict is this, then what is exactly the external conflict that will be the foil to that, to be the, like, to be the symbolic relief and the parallel to that? Mm -hmm. And, and I do that with a lot of my stories. And so, for example, I just sold another Asimov piece recently, and I think it's okay. coming out around Christmas time. It's called Ghost Colors. And I was reading a scientific paper on people were using X-ray crystallography 
to find out what colors dinosaur feathers were. And I thought, wow, yeah. so you're, you're going back 65 million years to find out the color of something. What kind of person would do that? And then I, I thought, what kind of a conflict would go with somebody who wants that and, and the, the sort of ghost hunting that goes on. And so I wrote a science fiction ghost story that right. I, I think, so there the external image of digging into the past to find color turns into a, like a, a, a ghost story where the, similarly they're looking for color in life. And in this case, love, therein lies the conflict. Another thing I think that I'd like to talk to you about which really comes with practice as, as, as so many other aspects of the craft is showing and telling. Most writers, when they start out, they get the, they get the advice, show, don't tell, which generally yeah. you know, 99 times out of 100, good advice. But then we discover as writers that we need to do a little bit of telling. I mean, I tend to think of it as almost like telling budget that you can spend a little bit of budget telling stuff in your story, but not too much. So what, where, where do you stand with that? What, what, what have you learned about showing and telling with the work that you've done? I think I can be very pig headed. <laughs> so <laughs> I, and, and that, that's the thing, right? Like you've, you've heard earlier in the interview how somebody says something and I'll be like, well, I, I can do that. And so when you see in so many places, you have to show, don't tell and maintain a tight point of view in third person. I took those as just truisms. And I said, I'm going to do it. I'm never going to fail. And I'm going to make it work for me. And so for me, I wasn't even doing the 99 times out of 100. I would do the 100 times out of 100, you know, show, 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 yep. and maintain the tightness, the absolute strict discipline on the point of view. Yep. And I, I showed this story to my writer's group at fourth draft when I felt it was doing pretty good. Not all of your listeners will, will be familiar with uh, Campbell, but he was sort of the godfather of science fiction, and mm. he was the one who introduced the idea of, in science fiction, if there's a ray gun, people aren't going to stand around it and admire it. It's just going to be another one of those items that's normal in their life. And that was the yes. Campbellian sort of rule, okay. right? We don't stop every morning and marvel over the microwave as we're making our coffee. It's, we press the buttons and scratch our eyes and go do something else. So in the same way, when I was writing this story, I tried to follow that and make where the hero is walking around, he's not going to note every little thing no i i could i could describe things from his point of view and that was fine i i've got a lot of practice at that but i i had trouble starting with how do you describe what the planet looks like when he's just wandering around it yeah. and i had scattered yeah. a few things here and there and my writer's group said you know what we get that you're trying to show but it's yeah. not working for the story derek you have to tell in some spots and we recommend you bite the bullet take three paragraphs at the beginning just tell us where the heck we are yeah. and after that tell the story and i found that painful as an exercise because i yes. that's one piece of the the story where i'm still not entirely satisfied because i don't think i did like I, I, hindsight is 2020 and the story sold to asimovs and got the asimovs award and everything but i i still feel like it doesn't rub me the right way i really wish i didn't have to tell but there are times when it's necessary and my writers group made me realize that because they said derek no it's not working and that's one of the most valuable things I get from them, where they just call me on something where I'm hoping it's going to work. And they're like, you shouldn't have even brought this particular element <laughs> to us because you, what are you trying to pull? And yeah. that's the sign of a really great writer's group. Yeah. And, and I don't, not everybody has a writer's group. And so maybe some of your listeners are thinking, well, how the heck will I know when is the right time to show and when's the right time to tell? Yeah. Or like, or or more to the point, when's the time to break the rules? Because they, there's lots of writing rules. Yes. And there are lots of times to break them, and there are some masters of, of writing who break them regularly quite successfully. 
And the thing is, I think the acid test of whether you try it, see what you can do. But when the story doesn't work, then you'll know that was not the right rule to break. Or if the story doesn't work, you'll know that the rule wasn't the right one to follow. You've probably heard the thing about it's like you've got to write a million words before you can oh, write Oh, I swear by it. Yeah. I'm at 950,000, I think. <laughs> You're nearly there. Yeah. yeah. But, but here's the interesting thing. I'm taking that rule to be you need to write a million words before you consistently write good words. Because otherwise, how do you explain the earlier successes? Because my yes. second sale to Asimov's, like that's that's a, a, a big magazine. And yeah, absolutely. You know, my second sale, I was not writing consistently that good because I had a string of every, like I had a drought after that Asimov publication. When I got it, I was like, I arrived and, and wow, was I ever wrong because I had so much more to learn and I think I fluked into that second sale in the sense that, all of the pieces of the story that I can now consciously put together, I had unconsciously put together by a, a little bit of luck. Right. And so there was a lot more to learn, and that early success uh, was was a fluke. And I think there's other flukes before you get to your million. And I'm I'm probably still uh, in my fluke stage. Well, maybe maybe <laughs> I, I'm fluking less, less and less, and succeeding more and more. But they're still not perfect. I just want to come back to this showing and telling thing. There is this challenge to quickly immerse the reader in the world that you're creating without them stumbling, but giving them just enough so that they're in, they're on the bus, basically. They're going there with you. Do you think in that context, with where the needle, you put a bunch of telling up front, that is generally the best way to do these things? Or was that just the right way for that story? You know what, Andy, I'm not even sure it was the right thing to do with that story, but it's the only thing that my writer's group was unanimous on, and I didn't have right. a better idea, so I right. did it that way, and it turned out that it worked. I think the challenge of drawing your reader in and putting them on the bus, as you say, is is tough, and it's particularly tougher when whenever you move away from downtown Canada or downtown UK, they say that in science fiction or fantasy, the three-act structure is a little different, because in normal, mundane muggle fiction, yeah. the a act one lasts, let's say, 15% to 25% of a story. Yep. But in in any like science fiction or fantasy, and I would argue that probably in historical fiction as well, Act One is like twenty five to thirty three percent, and sometimes even longer, and because you, you have to put in the exposition. In that structure that you're talking about, the three act structure again, so not everybody's going to know exactly what that is. So can can you give us a kind of heads up on essentially sure, what is, what's Act One, what's Act Two, or what's Act Three? Okay, this is this is a Cole's Notes version. Um, act One is where you get the, it starts at the inciting incident, it yep. goes along, it introduces the character of the world and everything else, and it goes up to the point where the hero makes a goal and starts implementing that goal. So, plot starts. Act two is where the stakes rise, and there is the, near the end of act two, the moment of most darkness, and some, in Joseph Campbell they call that the visit to hell, is is the, the, the bottom part, I believe. And then, Act two ends when basically, after all the struggles and, and sort of moving back and moving back and retreating from, you know, whatever the antagonist is, the hero kind of turns around and says, I, I take as much as I can and I can't take no more, and turns around and attacks his or her problem. And, and act three is the climax and the denouement. And so 
to set up a story, let's say a cowboy romance in modern day Alberta, you're not going to need a whole lot of time to set up act one. You're going to introduce the characters. There's going to be the romantic tension right away. You're not going to have to explain what a Jeep is. And you're you're off to the races by 15% into the novel. Sure. Whereas it takes a lot longer. I do think that the conventions of the craft have changed though, and that people are more on the alert for expository dumps than they've been in the past. And so there's, I, I don't find there's a lot of tolerance for expository lumps. You can't get away with it. You can't sell the stuff that way anymore. Too many people have too short a patience, and I think that's fine because I have short patience, and I don't want to sit through an expository lump too. And so, so that's the thing. I think I'd agree with a lot of that in the sense that I think people are very sensitive, and perhaps editors more than anybody else to the kind of info dump. So mm-hmm. a, 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 a clump of telling, an expository dump, I think that just just makes editors very fidgety personally i think the pendulum has swung too far properly done a little bit of telling is actually fine it's actually okay and and telling releasing a few facts about or you know releasing a few aspects to, to about the character that's fine we're not, we're not here talking about you know 20 pages of a victorian novel uh, which is yeah. it's just a kind of tell fest I think we probably got too sensitive about telling. I think so, too. I personally am too sensitive about telling, and I'm trying to dial that back now. Sure. And, I mean, you know, the evidence is that you've managed to do some of that with the wear the needle, because by your own admission, there's a little bit of telling up front, but, hey, you've sold it to Asimov, so it's all good. I just want to pick up on something else that you said there. You mentioned in your description of the three-act structure in uh, Act 1, the inciting incident. Just for those who are not sure what that is... That's generally thought of as the critical plot element that impacts the protagonist in some way. And their life changes. It may be their life is going along fine up to that point, and then their life changes or something happens which then impels them into the story and into the plot and gives the thing dynamism. The other aspect of that story, which I wanted to just talk to you about, was the fact that it is pretty original, and we've kind of implied this already. You know, it's it's set on a world which is energised by a pulsar. The life on that world is not carbon-based or cellular-based in any way. It's Mm -hmm. a very abstract thing. So it's an original setting in many ways. So what is the power, in in your mind, of of originality and how important is that? Like, I've talked about epiphanies before. It seems my life is one big string of epiphanies. But I was at at World Fantasy Convention in 2008, and I don't know how many of your, your listeners know what a convention is for science fiction, but it's a place where a bunch of fans get together and they pay to bring writers and editors and everybody else. And then they, they talk, they talk about books, they talk about movies, they talk about writing, they talk about all sorts of stuff. And so I was at this convention and it was one of those panels uh, where they had assembled four pretty high profile um, short fiction editors. Mm-hmm. And it was, how do you get out of the slush pile or escaping the slush pile or something like that? Yeah. And I believe it was Yetzi DeVries from Strange Horizons who said, I get plenty of competently written stories every week. Very few of them are original. And that hit me like I thought I am competent. And I thought, oh, my God, what if I'm not original? (laughs) And so so I immediately started, like, in this sort of self-conscious way, examining not only what I'd written before and thinking, oh, God, like in my first novel, all those rubber-headed aliens that I'd seen on Star Trek that I put in my book, no wonder Mm. it didn't go anywhere. But then I applied that cliché detector to everything I was looking 
at mm. going forward and writing. And so on anything I'd think of as an idea, I'd say it's probably not a good idea. I should keep on thinking. And this, in fact, came up like probably one of the reasons why I was primed to receive this epiphany was Orson Scott Card wrote a really good book on, you know, writing science fiction. And he said, mm. avoid cliche and pose yourself a lot of questions and the first idea is a probably a cliche because you dredge it up from your head. The first thing you think of is the easiest, which is probably something you've read somewhere else. Think of the second idea in answer to that question, and then you may be getting to something, but it's probably a cliche. The third one's mm. probably not cliche. And so I mm. applied that on all of my stuff. And the, the other thing is I apply it to when I'm critiquing other people in my writer's group. And also when I select works I'm going to read. And I think for me, it's impossible now to read a story with a dwarf in a tavern. It, I, I <laughs> Unless you're doing something really remarkable with the dwarf, I don't want to know about it. And so originality is at the core of, of what I'm trying to do. And when you talk about cliché, I think you're talking about it in a broader sense as well. So it's a, it's the cliché ideas and the cliché concepts as well. It's I think both. You're, yeah. I, I, I use it at both. And so yeah. I use it at the story level and the creative choices level, but then I also use it at the word choice level. So very often in my critiques to my writer's group, I'll say, I've heard this phrase before. You know, they love me, uh, but it's, <laughs> uh, but then they stick it to me when it's my turn. That's, that's sure. why I was a friend. Sure. One of the things that I think really helps me at the word level when I'm looking for cliches is you ju just scouring away all of the passive wording. And so I'll do keyword searches for was and were and felt and saw and heard and looked. And whenever I find a sentence with one of those things, I'll say, is there some better way I could write this sentence? And when you look sentence by sentence, most of the time you can do something much better. Coming back to a more general point now, I think people listening to this maybe who are starting out or maybe they're at that point where they feel like they're banging their head against a brick wall they're, they're trying to learn the craft and and they're not they don't feel they're making huge amounts of progress what what kind of advice have you got for people in that position people who haven't yet broken through well it took me from the time i was 15 to the time i was 35 to get my first short story published and i had two novels in the way there so i mean everybody goes through it everybody's got mm. one or more trunk novels and you've you've got the same with short short fiction what what changed it around for me was i i had to read so much short fiction and i think for the first little while you kind of drown in it like none of it makes any sense because you don't know which editorial taste you actually enjoy mm. and and it took a long time for me to just stumble upon i found out like david hartwell and and katherine kramer's uh anthologies of the year's best i i quite like those they're kind of science fiction with a bit of a literary bent. And so those were some of the ones I was reading mm. when I was trying to train. What really unduck it for me, though, was actually Escape Pod and Podcastle. Steve Ely's editorial choice was he didn't want you to be depressed or anything getting into work on your commute. So he picked relatively upbeat science fiction and fantasy yep. stories. And so I think I listened because I have you know, commutes like everybody, and I sometimes sure. go on road trips and stuff. And uh, I, I ended up in a period of maybe 18 months listening to 250 escape pods and maybe another 150 podcasts. And after listening to so many, and, and I would take notes on the ones that I found interesting. Like, I wouldn't do it on every one, but no. I would see creative choices that people had made. 
I would work backwards to the question that they had been answering with that creative choice, and then I would say, would I have answered that the same way? Or how many other ways are there to answer that creative question? And Mm. that would sometimes give me a ton of new ideas. And at the same time, listening to so many stories, or reading them, I mean, whatever your pleasure is, but going through 400 short stories with an editorial style you like, I mean, the beats of the story and the sort of tempo and the pacing, Mm. you know, it just started to come together a little more naturally. It internalized And I think that really helped. And so, I mean, an enormous amount of reading. And I swear by short stories. Like, I mean, I know Mm -hmm. everybody wants to write a novel, and I do too, and I've written a few, and I'm writing another one now. But, wow, did short stories ever teach me quickly, like, compared to the noveling. Okay. And just for for people who are not not sure about it, Escape Pod and Podcastle, these are two podcasts that people could download free. They can go to iTunes or whatever they go for their podcasts. Uh, Escape Pod is is science fiction short stories podcast is fantasy short stories i think that's correct isn't it yeah it is and i mean if people like horror there's also pseudopod you've more than alluded to one of the critical pieces of advice that new writers get which is to read as much as possible and read it read and read and read to find out what is what's being published what works what are people looking for absolutely and and it's not advice you want like so for example (laughs) on my first or second novel i was looking for an agent or a publisher like everybody does and every agent and every publisher says read the books that we've put out and i'm like oh my god you know how many like how many novels am i gonna have to read to to know what you you want to represent nobody wants to do that you just want an agent like sell my damn book sort of thing yeah but yeah. I, I do swear by the reading and the thing is if you like anyway when I read something and I find something interesting I write it down and it goes into this big chamber of ideas and then later on when I'm looking for something I'll take three or four ideas that I've got from three or four different stories and when I put them together they turn into something good and and the other thing is you know we, we talked about science fiction fantasy and horror podcasts mm. but the New Yorker has a brilliant audio fiction thing. They put on one podcast a month, and I love those. My God, they're good. They introduced me to Borges, a bunch of writers that I would not normally have been exposed to, and just brilliant, brilliant writing of the level you'd expect from The New Yorker. And though you see magic realism, you see extreme realism, you see different kinds of weird, you see, you know, hyper-realistic and literary. I, 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 I listen to those too. Actually, I do as well. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast or whatever it's called. I can't remember exactly the name of it. And as you say, it's monthly and it is a masterclass in uh, it's a masterclass in, in short story form but whatever genre you're writing in there there are huge lessons there and um, and the nice thing is the editor and the person reading the story talk about it both before and after and deconstruct yeah. it a bit so they do give you a little bit of context for what you're hearing which is which for some of these stories is, is really helpful actually yeah so is there anything else by way of advice or reflections on the craft where you want to talk about before we finish I'm not sure it's about the craft because they've listened to a few of your podcasts. And I mean, you're covering the craft anyway. And I mean, everybody's got their different epiphanies that they're going to get and they're going to get them at different times. And so I don't want to, you know, sort of add to the epiphany backlog. Um, I would, I would just say read enormously, take notes, be suspicious of your first idea and your second and try reversing things and seeing what other people have done and try and do different than what they did with the same creative choices and and just keep on writing because we all have to anyway right yeah i mean it's the people who say i can't help it i've just got to write who are who are the writers um, yeah if you get it because if you don't really really want to write life's too short go and do something else well i think it was harlan ellison who said that if somebody can convince you not to write they really should yeah and it's best for you if they do really exactly <laughs> go play golf 
So if, if people are interested in your work, Derek, where can they go to find out a little bit more about you and a, a bit more about accessing your stories? Well, my, my website is DerekKrinskin.com. So that's D-E-R-E-K is my first name. K-U-N-S-K-E-N.com is my website. And it's also my name on Twitter. And people on my website, there's a my fiction section. And I mean, some of my stuff that has appeared was once in magazine and now is gone. Some of it is has been uh, reprinted in audio fiction form. And uh, some of it is online. And so if people are interested, send me an email or something or, or you want to talk writing. I'm always up for that. Okay. Um, I've, I've also got a, a new story coming out in Analog in the November issue, which oddly enough comes out just after September 1st. And I'm pretty proud of that one. It's a survival story set on Venus. And I mean, you know, if you're not into science fiction, definitely don't check it out. But um, if you are, it's, I'm really proud of it. And uh, it's my first publication in Analog, which is one of those magazines that goes all the way back to 1930. So it's a very history yeah. magazine. It's going to be called uh, Persephone Descending. Okay, so I guess people could just check that out on the, on the internet, the analog, and, and Asimov probably. Yeah, I, I, I've got another uh, Asimov story uh, coming up, but it'll be closer okay. to Christmas time. I think you're working on a convention that's coming up soon. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Ottawa has a science fiction, fantasy, and horror convention. It's called CanCon, and if you go to www.can dash con.org uh, you'll have the information about it and it, it's basically i've got five publishers coming uh 25 or 30 writers are going to be coming to ottawa and you know many are ottawa writers and many aspiring writers and lots and lots of fans we'll be talking about writing we'll be talking about the economics of writing magazines we'll be talking about what people should be reading we've got local Ottawa horror filmmakers who are going to be screening uh, some of their movies at night. We'll be having parties where people can mingle with, uh, you know, the publishers and editors and so on. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. And when's that happening? The 3rd through the 5th of October in Ottawa downtown. Okay, that's great. So if people want to find out more, it's can-con.org. Is that correct? Exactly. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time, Derek. Fascinating talking to you, listening to your insights. Thanks very much much. for your time. Bye-bye. Bye.